pray blessing, God, over our young people in this church. God, we are so thankful for them. And God, even the noise they make sometimes is just a reminder, God, that there's young life here, and we thank you for that. Uh, God, we uh, thank you for who you are, and we thank you, God, for your church. And God, we uh, just pray blessing over this church. We pray blessing, God, over the churches that are meeting, God, all over the world today. And God, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, we have been doing a series called Across the Spectrum. And uh, this series has all been about taking the most controversial topics within Christianity and looking at how different Christians look at that view. And so we've dealt with some super duper difficult ones so far. We've dealt with the idea of creation, how and when the world was created, um, and we looked at how different Christians answered that question. Uh, we've looked at uh, Old Testament violence and the, and the problem of you know, God seemingly being so violent in the Old Testament, and we've looked at how different Christians have answered that question. Uh, we've looked at the concept of hell and uh, looked at different, how different Christians have answered that question. And there's no way we can uh, finish off the series without dealing with the most controversial topic within Christianity today. Uh, by far one of the most divisive, talked about uh, questions that the church is wrestling with today. And that is the issue of uh, same-sex gender or same-gender marriage or same-gender relationships. And uh, the whole point of the series has been to inform us about some of these larger discussions going on in the church. Um, uh, this is a discussion that is, is, again, probably, every generation has faced big discussions within the church, but for this generation, this is one of the biggest questions that uh, a lot of Christians are wrestling with. And if you care anything for the younger generation, uh, you need to understand that the young generation of Christians is struggling with this question even more, probably, than some of the older generation. And so uh, it's just impossible to go around this question. If, if we're doing a series on the most difficult questions, then we need to include this one as well. And, uh, and, and just like all these other questions, there are Christians who love Jesus, who love the Bible, see the Bible as an authority, who don't land on the same side of this issue, just like all the other issues we've talked about. In fact, I know for a reality that there are Christians in this church whom we're all getting along and loving each other, who are on different sides of this issue as well. And so, um, um, again, it's an issue that we need to, need to talk about. And um, as I've done this whole series, and this will probably make some of you uncomfortable, but as I've done through this whole series, I haven't been giving my opinion. I've just been offering the different viewpoints. And part of that is because I don't want any of you ever to say, well, Pastor Jesse believes that, so it must be right. I, I, I think I'm right on everything, but uh, I may not be right on everything. <laughs> and, and so part of the reason is to throw some of these issues into your plate and not just be someone who, well, this is what Pastor Jesse believes, so I guess that's right, is to actually encourage you to study theology. And that's been the whole point of this series, is to encourage you to study theology and to study and to wrestle with texts so that your faith doesn't rely on someone else's view. That your faith actually relies on stuff that you have wrestled with. And the only way you can properly wrestle with, thing, with issues is that you've got to see both sides of the issue. You've got to see the broader discussion in the church. Uh, in fact, the Bible tells us 
uh, in 2 Timothy 2.15, to be a good worker, one who does not need to be ashamed and who correctly explains the word of truth, that each of us is to be a good worker with the scriptures. I'm meaning that, that you have to wrestle with these things, and, and hopefully maybe you've been wrestling with some of these issues we've talked about, and, and today is probably going to be the most uncomfortable uh, for many of us, uh, but it, again, it is an issue the church is wrestling with. Uh, and again, uh, we're going to talk about it. So the, the, the two views uh, that we're going to look at, two, two main views, there are other views, but the two main views when it comes to same-gender marriage or same-gender relationships are the, the non-infirming view, which would be the traditional view, which would the view that probably the majority of Christians around the world hold. And then there's the affirming view, uh, which would say uh, that, that God is okay with same-gender marriage and that the church should be okay with it as well. And so those are the two, the two views. Now if we go to our doctrinal chart that we've pulled up uh, every week. In the center we have God, God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit as whom we get our identity and our value and worth from. And then we have dogma, those are the, the issues that all Christians agree on. Then we have doctrine, those are the things that make one denomination different from another, one kind of Christian different from another kind of Christian. And then we have opinion, those things that the Bible's not very clear on, those things that are kind of gray. You know, should you do rock music or hymns in a church? Those kinds of things are opinions. <laughs> now this uh, issue, um, most Christians, including myself, would put it in the area of doctrine. Uh, but you have to understand that some will put this in the area of dogma. Uh, some will put this area in an issue of, of an essential, and this is why it is so divisive in, in the church. Now, I put it in the area of doctrine because it's not found in any of the creeds. Um, and so, again, it's just what makes this issue more, more difficult is where you place it even in the theological spectrum. Now, uh, with all of these sermons, I've always started with where the different views agree. And so I'm going to start there. And so here's some things that these views would agree on more or less. Okay, More or less would agree on some more or some less. The first thing that both views would agree on is that both sides agree that the church has typically not handled the topic of homosexuality well. Uh, in fact, if you know of the infamous Westboro Baptist Church, there's the people who hold up the most hatred signs to, on all different kinds of topics, uh, has really become sort of the nameplate for how a lot of people see Christianity. That uh, studies show that a lot of people, at least on the outside, when they look at Christianity, including studies of people within Christianity, uh, would uh, uh, usually see Christianity as related to Christians hating homosexuals. In fact, uh, Barner Research showed this. Uh, in our research, the perception that Christians are against gays and lesbians, not only objecting to their lifestyles, but also harboring irrational fear and unmerited scorn towards them, has reached critical mass. The gay issue has become the big one, the negative image most likely to be intertwined with Christi Christianity's reputation. Outsiders say our hostility towards gays, not just opposition to homosexual policy of ho politics and behaviors, but disdain for gay individuals has become virtually synonymous with the Christian faith. And so that's kind of perception out there. Uh, so again, this is nothing, I mean, it's an issue, and both sides realize this is, is an issue, and I think I do have a video clip uh, here from, I think it's actually one of the Bar Barna researchers. He's someone who would come from 
a non-affirming view, but is talking about the perception of the church. Eric was raised in a Christian home, and yet from a young age he realized that he was different. People let him know that he was different. They treated him like he was some subhuman person. They mocked him, they teased him. Instead of calling him Eric, they called him faggot. On one occasion, he was assaulted with a full classroom present, including the teacher. When he finally came out to his parents and told them that gay. Instead of loving him, instead of listening to him, they kicked him out of the house. They said he was disgusting, unnatural, perverted, damned to hell. Eric tried to find love elsewhere, and he, he tried to tell other teens who were uh, in similar positions as he was that it gets better to hang in there. A month later, Eric killed himself. church needs to realize that people will gravitate to where they find love. And if they don't find true, authentic love in the church, they will go outside the church to find love. I'm fascinated that Jesus drew all kinds of people to himself. The, the marginalized, the, the outcast, they were particularly drawn to Christ. And yet I don't think they walked away wanting to kill themselves. You see, the church needs to improve this discussion. We cannot sit around debating some issue. We cannot dissect some conversation as if it's not real people. You see, homosexuality is not some issue to be debated, but people to be loved. And uh, actually what he's talking about, uh, they've actually um, uh, found statistically that gays who saw, in fact, here's a study here, uh, gay, lesbian and gay students who viewed religion as very important had greater odds for recent suicidal thoughts and attempts than lesbian gay individuals who thought religion was less important. And this study was actually done in Texas, so when they're talking about religion, they're talking about Christianity. That gay and lesbians who found themselves in the church actually had higher uh, suicidal thoughts and attempts. Uh, and, and again, it just shows that as both sides would agree that the church needs to do better on this, this topic. Um, both sides would also agree that uh, there are sexual excesses in both heterosexual and homosexual interactions. Uh, that both sides would agree that there's excesses, and, and the Bible talks a ton about sexual excesses within heterosexual relationships, uh, not just homosexual relationships. And so both sides would agree that there are excesses on both sides. I mean, uh, 1 Corinthians 5.1 uh, even talks about heterosexual excesses, like it is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you. A man is sleeping with his father's wife. And so uh, both would agree that there's excesses um, on bo both sides of this, this issue. Uh, both sides would agree 
Also, that same-sex attraction is not, not a choice. And this is one of those kind of uh, theories within a lot of Christian minds who've actually never studied this issue. They just kind of think that, that all homosexuals just choose this kind of lifestyle, and if they would just you know, change their mind, repent, and have a quick prayer, that they're going to be okay. Uh, that's actually just not so. Uh, as uh, Dr. Dean Burnett said, uh, maybe we, we might think it's a lifestyle thing, as many claim. This suggests that those who are about to choose their sexual orientation look at the consequences of homosexuality and think it's a better option. They see the oppression, the suicide rates, the discrimination, the harassment, the inequality, the increased risk of mental health issues or abandonment from your family. They see all this and think, I gotta get me some of that. This seems to put it mildly unlikely. Um, uh, it's, it's not a choice. No, of course, there are probably people out there who have cho chosen it. I mean, you can always find the exception to the rule, but generally speaking, both sides would agree that people who are gay or lesbian, uh, that it's not a, a choice that they've made. Uh, that a lot of Christian parents have seen that their kids were different even before adolescence, and uh, a lot of kids who have grown up this, when they hit adolescence, notice that their friends are looking at the opposite sex, but for some reason they find themselves attracted to the same sex. And now their friends are fantasizing about the opposite sex, they find themselves fantasizing about the same sex. And so, um, Christians especially, uh, a lot of Christians who find themselves in the church struggling with this, uh, they will often do everything to escape from it and go for prayer and, and, and getting demons cast out of them or whatever because they're just hoping that somehow God would save them from this. And the story after story after story after story is God has not changed them. Now, there are stories out there, uh, of course, of people who've gotten prayed and, and have been changed, but uh, the vast majority haven't. Uh, I think I do have another video clip here. Uh, or actually a quote, Justin Lee, this is Justin Lee, he says, I could share hundreds and hundreds of stories of people who poured their hearts into ex-gay programs, prayer, and other types of therapy, only discover that neither they nor the others in their programs ever became straight. And in fact, Exodus International was a ministry that for over 37 years was trying to set people free in Jesus' name. And in the end, ended up shutting down, and the, the guy who headed actually apologized to the, the gay community. Uh, because often it actually, they found it causes, causes more, more damage. And here's Justin Lee, a uh, video clip of him. He would be someone who loves Jesus, loves the Bible, but is on the affirming side, talking about this, this issue. understanding of this wasn't nuanced at all. I thought people just chose to be gay, and that it was a sinful choice. As a devout evangelical, I never would have chosen to be gay. When I realized as a teenager that I was attracted to guys and not girls, I thought it was a phase I could grow out of. When that didn't happen, I thought if I prayed about it and trusted Christ and had enough faith and got the right therapy and never acted on my feelings, that eventually God would make me straight. I called myself straight even though I wasn't. I dated girls even though I wasn't attracted to them. And I went to Christian groups called Ex-Gay Ministries, where I met lots and lots of miserable people desperately trying to change their orientation for God. But it wasn't working. I saw so many people end up hating themselves when their orientation didn't change, lonely and depressed, while their Christian friends back home kept thinking it was a choice and that they were rebelling against Jesus. Today, the majority of Christians have come to realize that sexual orientation isn't just a choice. 
And much of the ex-gay movement has collapsed as so many of the leaders who once claimed God had made them straight have since admitted that it wasn't true. Even many of the most conservative churches are recognizing that some people are just always going to be attracted to the same sex and not the opposite sex. In other words, gay. Now, out of the uh, Christians who would consider themselves gay, again, there, I mean, maybe this is news to you, but there are uh, Christians who love Jesus and love God's word and, and who are gay and part of the church. Uh, they would, would divide themselves into two camps. There would be what you call side A, gay Christians, and side B, uh, gay Christians. Side A are those who affirm committed gay marriage relationships, so those Gay Christians who are part of the church would be affirming, would affirm gay relationships that lead to marriage. Um, and then there are side B gay Christians, those who view their same-sex attractions as a temptation and strive to live celibate lives. Again, this idea that, that the vast majority of them, they can't change. And so they have divided themselves into two camps. Uh, one will say, I'm going to remain celibate and just see this as a temptation. The other camp says that just as heterosexual people pursue marriage and faithfulness and, and don't have sex before marriage but pursue marriage that, that they would do the same thing in, in the Christian sense. And here's just another clip of someone who comes from side B. Uh, this is a gay Christian who's actually a theology professor uh, who has uh, chosen for himself to remain celibate but here is him talking about some of the experience he has had with the church. We're to the point in, in the church right now where uh, a, lot of, a lot of gay people who, who think about becoming Christians or who already are Christians, who are, who are some way in the church or interested in the church, feel deeply unwelcome by the church. Um, it, it's, it's almost as though gay people, uh, gay and lesbian people, are considered the new tax collectors or the lepers in the gospel, the untouchables, those who we want to you know, keep our kids away from. Almost all of my gay friends could tell you stories, painful stories, about being rejected by their churches. Even the ones who are trying to live up to the Christian vision of things, uh, the, the, the biblical norms of sexual morality, would still tell you about being constantly under suspicion, constantly sort of pushed to the margins of the social life of the church. And so I think we're, I think we're in a period where... Um, the church is going to have to re-examine its gospel of grace and say, do we really believe that Jesus came for everybody, regardless of sexual orientation, regardless of moral failure or, or success, regardless of background, Jesus came to seek and to save the lost. The church has got to ask itself whether it really believes that. In a very real way, the Bible holds a complete welcome, unconditional welcome and acceptance to all of us, but it doesn't affirm any of us in who we are in ourselves, whether we're straight or whether we're gay, we're all under the judgment of God's law. We've all fallen short, as Paul says in Romans 3.23. We have all missed the mark of God's intention for our flourishing. And so it's really important that gay people not hear that as though that's a special message for them, as if straight people haven't missed the mark or, or, or fallen away. We've all fallen away, and we're all radically judged by God's holiness. And we're all radically welcomed by God's free forgiveness in Jesus Christ. All right, so again, uh, like the other messages in this series, 
these are just ginormous topics, and there's no way we can fit it all into one message. And so, again, I'm going to talk fast, and uh, like I have been. And, uh, and uh, again, just realize that I'm just doing little pinpricks uh, on each of these topics, and, and you'll probably leave with lots of questions. Well, what about this? And what about that? That's why I do have a list of resources uh, at the end for you to study. So now we get to the disagreement part. Uh, the disagreement is over whether the Bible makes allowance or not for same-gender relationships. For Christians, uh, this art debate really is, is around the Bible. Uh, because as a Christian, uh, you love God, you, you love Jesus, and, and you love his word, and you want to obey his word. And, and all Christians want, want, to, want to be faithful to God and faithful to, to, to the Bible. And so this is where the wrestle uh, and the struggle is over. Uh, the different ways the non-affirming or the affirming views view the scripture. Now there's more to this debate than just the scripture, but we are primarily going to look at the topic of scripture today. And within this debate, there are what is called the big six. Or sometimes the affirming side calls them the, the big six clobber passages of the Bible. We're going to look at all six, plus the, uh, another one in Genesis, which is also often brought up in this debate. And uh, throughout the rest of the series, what I have done previously is look at each view on its own. But because we're just looking at two views, we're going to take a text and then look at the different ways that each of these views looks at each of these texts. And so let's begin with uh, Sodom and Gomorrah. If you remember, Sodom and Gomorrah was a city uh, that had a lot of corruption, and so God says, I'm going to destroy the city. So he sends in a couple angels that look like human males, and they enter into the city to rescue Lot and his family, and it says this, the two angels arrived at Sodom in the evening. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came out to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. And so we see here that it says all the men from every part of the city came out, and they wanted to have sex with these, these two angels that look like men. And this is where we get the term sodomite from, which means uh, typically homosexuality, comes from this passage. Um, and so uh, how do the two views look at this text? Well, the non-affirming view would point to Jude verse 7 where it says Sodom and Gomorrah gave, and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. And they would say that perversion had to do with uh, these, the men of the city wanting to have sex with these two men kind of angels. And so they would begin the discussion by saying right from the beginning, God condemned a city where there was homosexual practice. And that would be how they would answer that. The affirming view would answer it a different way. They would look at the story and say, this has nothing to do with same-gender marriage. Uh, this doesn't even have much to do with homosexuality. This, this was gang rape. Uh, this was the men of the city wanting to gang rape these two men. And often in those cultures, they did that as an act of humiliation, to say that we're better, we're stronger, uh, even though they were heterosexual. Uh, they would point to this text in Ezekiel, that they would say the sin was not uh, homosexuality, but the sin was this. In Ezekiel 16, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, unconcerned. They did not help the poor and the needy. And so they would say that the whole thing was not about, you know, especially not about committed homosexual uh, relationships. It was about gang rape 
And, and the problem that, that God wanted to condemn the city had to do with their greed and, and their unconcern for the poor, poor and the needy. Uh, the next two passages that are brought up are Leviticus 18 and Leviticus, uh, Leviticus 20. Leviticus 18 says this, You shall not lie with a male as with a woman. It is an abomination. Or 20 verse 13, If a man lies with a male as with a woman, both of them have committed an abomination. They shall surely be put to death. Their blood is upon them. Uh, so the uh, non-affirming view would point out that, that they would say that God in this text calls uh, a male who sleeps with another male like a woman an abomination. And they would say the idea of abomination is detestable, that this is a, is a gross sin in God's eyes, and it's not acceptable. God calls it an abomination. Uh, they would also say this sin, although found in the law, uh, is carried on into the New Testament. And they would point to 1 Corinthians 6, 9. We'll look at that in a moment. And they would say, therefore, this text, even though in the Old Testament, is still valid for today. And they would point out other sins around that same text that are still valid to today, like sins of adultery, bestiality, incest, we would still say would valid. And so they would say, even though this is in the Old Testament law, it's still valid for today. The affirming people, their weight of the argument more is on uh, the fact that they would say the Old Testament law is no, no longer binding for Christians today. Like in Hebrews chapter 8, they would say, uh, when God speaks of a new covenant, it means he has made the first one obsolete. And how the old covenant is gone, the new covenant is here, that we don't follow the old covenant anymore, therefore it does not apply to Christians. Uh, they would also point out that uh, those texts actually say to put homosexuals to death. And, and they would say that even the non-affirming side don't actually take it literally because they're not putting homosexuals to death, nor would they ever even think about that. Uh, they would also point out other verses around that text that we would in no way ever do today. And this goes back to that question we had about Old Testament violence. If this brings up questions for you, you can go back to that sermon. Leviticus 21.9, it says, If a priest's daughter defiles herself by becoming a prostitute, she disgraces her father, she must be burned in the fire. Uh, and they would say that there's no way that Christians would ever think that today. <laughs> that there are all kinds of verses in the Old Testament which we don't do today. Therefore, you can't take this one about killing homosexuals and try to bring it into the New Testament would be their argument. They would look at the word abomination and say that there are other things in the Old Testament that are called abominations that we have no problem with today. They would point to Deuteronomy 13. Uh, you shall not eat any abomination, including the pig, all that are in the waters, whatever does not have fins and scales, you shall not eat. And so according to the Old Testament, pork chops, pulled pork, bacon, uh, shellfish, <laughs> shrimps, bun, lobster, clams, oysters, squid, are actually abominations to eat. And so they would say that these things, in fact, in, in Acts chapter 10, uh, God actually says these things are okay to eat. And so they would say, you can't say, well, we just pick and choose. And so they would say they're picking and choosing that there are other things that are called abominations that don't carry over into the New Testament, so their argument would be that you can't carry these texts over into the New Testament. Romans 1 is uh, one of the big texts in the New Testament. And it says this, For although they knew God, they neither glorified Him as God nor gave thanks to Him. But the thinking became futile, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise... They became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human beings, uh, birds and animals and reptiles. 
Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things uh, uh, served created things rather than the Creator who is forever praised. Amen. And then it says this, Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural uh, sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. So the uh, non-affirming view would uh, point in on these two words, the unnatural versus natural. That these people exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones, and they abandoned their natural relations. And they would talk that the natural is speaking back to Genesis 1, where God created the male and female. And they would say that this is the natural relationship, and anything in the realm of homosexuality is unnatural. They're uh, abandoning the male-female that God created, and they're unnaturally uh, wanting to get together with someone of the, the, same, the same sex. The uh, affirming view would say this, that this passage is speaking about those who have their hearts turned against God, not Christians. So right away, they would look at this whole text and say this is clearly talking about non-Christians. Uh, because it talks, talk, talk, it talks about how they neither glorified him nor gave thanks to him. They, they, they served created things rather than creator. And they would say that's, that's not at all in the Christian heart. This is talking about people who are rebelling against God, not people who are trying to love Jesus and, 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 and love his word. Uh, they would say that this passage is speaking of sexual excess and sinful lust. That they would say it has nothing to do with committed uh, same-gender marriage relationships. Uh, they would say, uh, for instance, that God gave them over to shameful lusts. They're inflamed with lust for one another. Men committed shameful acts. Uh, and they would say, even if you put heterosexual relations in, in, in this, it would still be just as bad. Because you can have shameful lusts. You can be inflamed with lust for one another and committing shameful acts, even in heterosexual relationships. So they would say that, yes, there are sexual excesses within homosexuality, but this is not talking about people who love Jesus, and it's not talking about same-gender relationships. They would look at the word natural versus unnatural. And again, they would point out that there are other places in the Bible that talk about natural and unnatural that we don't do today. For instance, 1 Corinthians 11, Judge for yourselves. Is it proper for a wife to pray to God with her head uncovered? Does not nature itself teach that if a man wears long hair, it is a disgrace for him? But if a woman has long hair, it's her glory? And in this whole passage, uh, Paul is saying it's unnatural for a woman to pray or talk in church without a head covering. And it's unnatural for men to have long hair. Uh, yet, very, very few Christians would agree that this is for today that we don't make any women here wear head coverings when they, they come to church if they're going to talk. Uh, and there are men who have long hair. My son has long hair. I mean, we don't, well, we don't follow this anymore. And so they would point out that this idea of nature and, and all this kind of stuff is, um, is not necessarily for today because, they would argue, you always need to go back to the context. And so their main argument throughout these next few verses we're going to look at is that whenever you interpret the Bible, they would say you need to go back to the cultural context of the first century. What was the culture, cultural context of Romans 1? How would the first century readers have understood it? And again, they would point out that there are lots of verses that are commands in the New Testament 
that we actually don't follow today because of this. For instance, 1 Corinthians 14, uh, women should be silent during the church meetings. It is, uh, it is not proper for them to speak. Yeah, we let women speak. Uh, in this church, we let them preach, and we let them on our leadership team, as do many churches. Uh, our 1 Timothy 2.9, women are to dress in suitable apparel with modesty and self-control. Their adornment must not be with braided hair and gold or pearls or expensive clothing. Uh, very few churches would ever, you know, say, oh, you braided your hair, you're a sinner, you know, today. Or you better not wear any makeup or jewelry. That is just horrible. Uh, we understand that there's some cultural stuff going on. And so this is where their argument comes for. They would say, what was going on in the first century? How would the first century uh, listeners would have, uh, how would they have heard this? And they would point out, and both, by the way, the affirming and the non-affirming views would agree with this, that in the ancient world, homosexuality was primarily between adult males and young boys, uh, pederasty, uh, like kings would often have young boys, and, and even married men would sometimes have to have young boys, ritual temple prostitution, in other words, to go worship a false god, sometimes you'd have to go to the temple, and you would have uh, uh, homosexual sex uh, between masters and slaves, just as there are sex slaves today. There were lots back in the Roman Empire. And between males and eunuchs, that is, uh, boys who were castrated so that when they got older, they still looked like boys, and therefore uh, it was kind of attractive for older men to, to, to have one of these boys as, you know, as, kind of a, as, a, as a sex tool back in those days. This, this was primarily how homosexuality was in the first century. And so they would say, when Paul is reading, writing Romans 1, that this is what he's talking about. They would say this has nothing to do with committed, lifelong marriage relationships of the same gender. He's talking about excesses. He's talking about sinful forms of homosexuality. They would argue that this is what the people would have heard and thought of when they understood Romans chapter 1. In fact, uh, one scholar said this, even when married husbands, even when married Husbands were encouraged to have sex with their wives solely for the purpose of procreation and to find other outlets for their erotic passions. Sex with slaves and prostitutes was considered a moral alternative and, 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 and it was uh, often even a homosexual, homosexual kind of, uh, of sex that would happen even with married, married men. So again, the argument, they would say that this is what this, is, this text is talking about. The non-affirming side would come back and say, well, wait a second. Uh, there is a popular belief, as Tom Wright says, there is, a, uh, there is a popular belief just now that the ancients didn't know about lifelong same-sex relationships. But this is easily refuted by the evidence both literary and, and uh, both from literary and archaeology. And so they would say that uh, same-sex committed uh, marriages weren't unknown in the ancient world. They were very rare, but they, they were known. And so they would argue that this passage, though, yes, homosexual practices were very sinful and had to do with sleeping with kids and slaves and those kind of things, that they would say that uh, it also would include uh, lifelong committed marriages, because they would say that also did happen back then. Now, the next two big passages are these in 1 Corinthians 6-9. It says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Uh, don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin, or who worship idols, or commit adultery, or who are male prostitutes, or practice homosexual, uh, homosexuality. 
Uh, 1 Timothy says, We also know that the law is made not for the righteous, but for lawbreakers and rebels, the ungodly and sinful, the unholy and irreligious, for those who kill their fathers and mothers, for murderers, for the sexual, sexually immoral, for those practicing homosexuality, for slave traders and liars and perjurers, and for whatever else is contrary to sound doctrine. So both these passages, we see that it's kind of a list of sins. And so we see that there are a, a note of prostit male prostitutes, those practicing homosexuality. And again, in 1 Timothy, those practicing homosexuality. And it says that they're contrary to sound doctrine. So the non-affirming side would say this is really clear, that homosexuality is, again, a, a grievous sin, uh, that those who continually practice it will not inherit the kingdom of God. Again, they would say those who are practicing homosexuality, uh, they're contrary to sound doctrine. So the, the non-affirming would say that these words, talking about practicing homosexual, that that's what they, they actually mean. Now the non-affirming side, or the affirming side, sorry, would focus in on these two Greek words, uh, malakoi and arsenikotai. So in 1 Corinthians 6, 9, it, the, 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 the word male prostitutes is the Greek word malakoi. The word for practicing homosexuality in 1 Corinthians 6, 9 and in 1 Timothy 1, 10 is arsenikotai. And, and, and they will say that, that, that these words, that their definitions are actually not all that clear. And they would say that the translators should do a better job at trying to translate these, these two words. In fact, both affirming and non-affirming would agree that there's a bit of mystery to these words. In fact, Richard Hayes, who is a, would be a non-affirming New Testament scholar said this, the word malakoi uh, is not a technical term meaning homosexuals. No such term existed in, in Greek or in Hebrew. Uh, they would say, then he goes on to say the word arsenikotai is not found in any extant Greek texts earlier than 1 Corinthians. In other words, that word arsenikotai is not found in anything before Paul in 1 Corinthians 6.9. And so most scholars think that Paul actually invented the word or came up with the word. Uh, that it was uh, him coming up with, with this word. And so those who are on the affirming side would uh, point out that these words, that there's mystery to these words, and, and point out the truth is that, that not all scholars agree on the definitions. And uh, so they would point to various scholars who had different opinions. In fact, I'll just read, uh, I think I put four different scholars on here, biblical scholars, who have different opinions on what this word means. Uh, David Fredrickson, Malakoi implies excess or lack of self-control, which could apply to homosexuals, uh, too interested in having sex with women, to adulterers, and also to males who used other males. Arsenikotais probably referred to the pederast who disgraced boys by penetrating them, although it could also refer to any male who engages in unjust, violent sexual behavior. So he would suggest that these words really don't have anything to do with same-gender, lifelong marriages, but it had to do with excess, sinful lusts kind of a sins. Uh, Robert Gagnon, he says that Malakoi may refer to passive male prostitutes, to effeminate homosexual or homosexual males. The arsenikotites referred to the male who lives with the male who has homosexual intercourse. So this scholar would agree with the non-affirming view that it directly has to do with homosexual practice. Another scholar, Malakoi could include the man who is viewed as not being adequately manly to the more passive homosexual partner, <coughs> frequently a boy, and sometimes a slave. 
So again, you'll be pointing to sinful kind of practices. And also to those boys who solicited sex with their elders for pay. Then arsenicortes refers to the more active older male, often heterosexual and married, who kept a boy for his pleasure. So again, this scholar would say it's not about a committed same-sex relation. It's, called about, it's talking about sinful sexual practices, both hetero and homosexual sinful practices, not committed marriages. Uh, this would be one from a non-affirming view who says, Arsenicotis uh, is a translation of the Hebrew, whatever that says, I'm sure Marina could say it, <laughs> uh, uh, lying with the males, derived directly from Leviticus 18 and 20, and used in rabbinic texts to refer to homosexual intercourse. So this word that Paul came up with in the Greek, would, uh, they, he says he takes it from the Old Testament, and he combines a couple words which would be male who bed with males, is what kind of what they're talking about. So the idea is that they don't all agree. Uh, just another one, Arsenikotai did not always speak of sexual misconduct, but often included in ancient vice lists with the sins of economic exploitation. Of course, if the ideas of sexual sin and economic exploitation are combined, we find ourselves faced, once again, with the sexual use of enslaved persons and prostitutes. Other factors in 1 Timothy 1.10 may also support the idea that sexual slavery was the target of the apostles' exhortation, since kidnappers, some, sometimes translated slave traders, is listed right after Arsenicorti. So, lots of different views. In fact, if you look at the history of our translations, you will see that the history of our translations translates this word kind of all over the place. So Malakotai uh, is from weaklings to effeminate to sexual indulgent persons, passive homosexuals, homosexual boy prostitutes, abusers, homosexual cult prostitutes, male prostitute, a pervert, youth before they grow a beard, is how translations throughout history have done that word. Uh, Arsenicotai, uh, throughout history, uh, those who participate in homosexuality, sodomites, perverts, violators of boys, male prostitutes, active male prostitutes, men who lie sexually with males, homosexuals, males who sexually exploit other males, perverts, men who have sex with men. So again, uh, the affirming view would say that this word is all over the place. <laughs> um, and they would say that even if it is talking about homosexuality, it's talking about the sinful excess <coughs> practices of homosexuals, which should also be the same as for heterosexuals, that this has nothing to do with committed, lifelong, same-sex marriages is where the argument would go. Now, those are the six main passages, but also often uh, Genesis chapter 1 is brought in as well, where it says, God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful, increase in number, fill the earth, and subdue it. So the non-affirming side would point out that this is God's created order for marriage. As, as the old saying goes, that God created Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve, right? This is what the non-affirming side would say. That is, God created a male and female. That's the creation order, and we should never stray from that. Uh, they would also say that gay relationships can't be fruitful and increase in number. Because it says, God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number. And they would say that great gay relationships are incapable of, uh, 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 incapable of that. And so, therefore... Marriage can only be between, between a man and a woman. Uh, affirming side would come back and say that many uh, heterosexual couples can't be fruitful and increase in number. That a lot of uh, heterosexual couples are infertile. So they would say, does that mean that they shouldn't be married if it has to do with being fruitful and multiplying? Uh, they would say the concern of Genesis 1 and 2 is companionship. 
and a helper that is suitable. That God saw Adam was alone, so he brings a companion to him that would be a helper and would be suitable. And they would say for a gay male, uh, a female is not a suitable helper because if they got married, it's totally unfair for the woman because he not, wouldn't be attracted to her. Uh, that the only kind of suitable helper for a male who is gay would be another male and for that to happen in a committed marriage relationship. So they would say that when God talks about a suitable helper, that the only suitable helper for them would be uh, a person they're attracted to because in marriage, that kind of helps. Um, they would say that some biblical pictures of marriage are not always heterosexual. Uh, they would point to Ephesians 5 where it says, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother, be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh, pointing to Genesis 1. Uh, but then they would say that this is a profound mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church and how all throughout the Bible, Christ is the groom and, and the church is the bride and there's going to be this marriage supper and the reality that, that Jesus is a male and I'm a pastor and I'm a male and uh, I'm, I'm his bride. And so they would make that argument that even some of the biblical pictures of marriage are actually, um, you know, Jesus being a male and some of the church being a male. Now the other big point brought up... Um, in this whole debate is uh, often the affirming side will bring up the, the issue of slavery and uh, sometimes the issue of women, women and they would say that this issue of same-sex marriage is just another thing the church has to battle through just like the church had to battle through women in ministry just like the church had to battle through slavery a century and a half ago and so they, again they would point to passages like 1 Timothy 1 I do not permit a woman to teach or to assume authority over a man. And they would say for most of church history that men were only seen as the only kind of pastors. That could, the leaders had to be men. And the church had to battle through that and into the bigger picture of God's grace and love and freedom. And so now uh, probably at least half, if not most, of the <coughs> Protestant churches would have no issues with a female pastor or female leaders. And so they would say that this whole issue is just another battle to be faced. And so they would talk about the whole battle of slavery and how just as you can come up with a list of six passages against homosexuality, you can come up with a list much longer that supports slavery. I mean, it's true. Throughout the Bible, you can find all kinds of rules for buying and selling slaves, that slaves should obey their masters, and that, that we should treat slaves respectively. Uh, but they would say no Christian accepts that today. Uh, I mean, Christians are big at fighting against slavery. And, um, and so they would say the church had to work through slavery, had to work through women in ministry, and, and this issue is just the same. It's just the new modern battle. In fact, uh, they would talk about the slavery idea as that it was a theological debate, just as this is a theological debate. That there were lots of Christians back in the day of slavery who, who thought in their heart that, you know what, we should really not be okay with having slaves but they couldn't get past the Bible because they would say the Bible was so clear that uh, we need that slaves and masters okay because of what the Bible taught. In fact, one church historian said this, nuanced, uh, nuanced biblical attacks on American slavery faced rough going precisely because they were nuanced. This position could not simply be read out of any one biblical text. In other words, the whole abolition movement didn't just have some clear verses to read, that it was more of a nuance. It was the overall theme of the Bible, of love and freedom and grace. Uh, it could not be lifted directly from the page. Rather, it needed patient reflection on the entirety of scriptures. It required expert knowledge of the historical circumstances 
of ancient Near Eastern and Roman slave systems. And it demanded that sophisticated interpretive practice replace a commonsensical, literal approach to the sacred text. That it was an immense theological battle uh, the, the whole abolition movement had against uh, sort of general Christianity. In fact, one pastor who, um, he, he thought slaves should be set free, and he was for abolition, but he couldn't get past the biblical text. Therefore, he would say, even though in my heart I feel it's wrong, we have to stick to what the Bible says. And, and here was one of, uh, one of the things he said. Uh, the evidence that, that uh, there were both slaves and masters of slaves in the churches founded and directed by the apostles cannot be got rid of without resorting to methods of interpretation which will get rid of everything. For the tree of abolition is evil, and only evil. It springs from and is nourished by an utter rejection of the scriptures. And if you study the history of abolition, you realize that a lot of people are saying that if you move on this, you're, you're going down a slippery slope of the Bible. Because the Bible's so clear that slaves and masters, okay, you're going down a slippery slope and, and you're going to have to reject the scriptures. It was largely a theological debate. And so the people of the affirming position will, will bring this up and say, this is an exact picture of what is happening today. It's a theological issue. The same arguments of going down a slippery slope are used just as they were used of slavery. Now, the non-affirming side will come back, of course, on any of these difficult topics. There's always two sides to the issue. The non-affirming side will come back, and uh, here, here's Tim Keller and what he says in response to the slavery argument. He says, the analogy between the church's view of slavery and his view of homosexuality breaks down. Up until very recently, all Christian churches and theologians unanimously read the Bible as condemning homosexuality. By contrast, there was never any consensus or even a majority of churches that thought slavery and segregation were supported by the Bible. Chapel shows that even within the <coughs> segregationist South, efforts to support uh, racial separation from the Bible collapsed within a few years. Does anyone really think that within a few years from now, there will be no one willing to defend the traditional view of sexuality from the biblical text? And they will, so they will say that it's not a direct correlation uh, between, between the two. And that's where the, the argument would be between them. Um, oh, I thought I deleted the side, but I guess we'll throw it in. <clears throat> Just a quick thought on another view, because there's other views out there. Uh, there's another view out there. It's called the accommodation view, and it's is a view that somewhat bridges the gaps. And this view would say this, that homosexuality is not God's ideal will, and it is a result of this fallen world. But just as God has accommodated fallen humans acting in non-ideal ways in the past, God does accommodate and bless loving, lifelong same-gender unions. And so this view would say that this whole world has been corrupted by sin, and this whole world has fallen, and just as sometimes babies are born without an arm, or sometimes a baby was, is born blind, and that's obviously not God's ideal will of the perfect world, that sometimes people are born with same-sex attraction. Uh, and they would say that God can accommodate that. Uh, and they would point to Old Testament texts. This would be a similar argument to what we talked about in the Old Testament version of violence. That uh, in the Old Testament, for instance, God didn't want a temple. <laughs> the people said, we want a temple. And God said, I don't want a temple. And in the end, God said, okay, we'll build a temple. And God blesses the temple system. It's like he's for the temple system, even though it wasn't his ideal will. The same could be said of a king. Uh, the people wanted a king. God said, no, I'm your king. The people said, no, we want a king. God said, no. So the people said, we want a king. God said, okay. 
And then God blesses the whole king program, and he's behind the whole king program. And so they would say that, yes, that homosexuality is a result of this fallen world. And it's just because so many things are broken. Um, but because of the greater picture of love and commitment and those things that resemble uh, love covers a multitude of sin, that God still can bless uh, same-gender unions, and therefore the church should still bless them. Uh, so that's kind of the accommodation view, but we really need to be done. So let's uh, give you some resources. <coughs> um, if you want more information on the non-affirming view, here's a couple of books that are worth reading. Preston Sprinkle, uh, People to be Loved. Uh, Wesley Hill, who is actually a gay Christian who holds a non-affirming view, uh, he wrote a book called Wash and Weighty. If you want more information on the affirming view, you can read Justin Lee's book, uh, Torn, Rescuing the Gospel from the Gay versus Christian Debate, or you can read Matthew Vine's book, God and the Gay Christian. Uh, if you want just an all-in-one book and you want actually more scholarly information, this is a great book uh, because it, 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 these... Um, each position has a scholarly article, and the others respond to it, and they debate back and forth. It's found in this book, Homosexuality, the Bible, and the Church. And then I, I gave you some links to some YouTube videos that you may want to watch if you want to uh, study more on this issue. Those are in your sermon notes. But in the end, uh, we all need Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're gay or straight, you're lesbian, or you're, you're Jesse, or you drive a Volkswagen or a Ford, or you go to this church or the Baptist church. Or if you're a Christian or non-Christian, uh, we all need Jesus. Uh, we can all agree, we all need Jesus. Uh, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Uh, Jesus uh, in John 4, talking about him, in him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. Uh, we all need Jesus. I need Jesus. You need Jesus. Uh, we all need Jesus. He is the one who brings life and light uh, into our lives. And before we do anything with people... Uh, we love them, and, and we bring them to Jesus, and uh, because we all need, need uh, Jesus. Uh, so, Father, we uh, just commend the worldwide church to you. God, as the church wrestles through this, uh, God, we pray that your will be done and your ways would be known. And, God, that throughout this all, that Jesus would be the absolute focus of everything we do and everything we talk about. God, we thank you for sending your son, Jesus. We thank you that in him we have forgiveness. For our mistakes. We thank you that in him we have life and life abundantly. We thank you that in him well, we have peace that passes all understanding. God, we want more of your son Jesus. We want more of you, Father. We want more of the Holy Spirit in our midst. So continue to work in us, continue to bless us, continue to shape us. In Jesus' name.